It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe too quiet. It's all happening. It's a good day to die. It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk about Call Connect. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me as always are Gardner. Ring, 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 ring. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? And Taran. Ah, I can hear you. And joining us today is a very special guest. Andrew F. Pierce, film writer at The Curb, is here today to talk with us about his choice of film, the Australian short, Call Connect. Andrew? Welcome to GDT Podcast. Hello, thank you very much. And look, I can tell you that the toilets flush in a different direction down here. So I know that's the question you want answered. Most of all, they do flush in a different direction. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here today. And thank you for starting us off exactly with what our audience has been dying for us to ask this whole time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It's, it's the main question that American people ask me. It's like, how do your toilets work? That's it. And then they remember that I talk about films and stuff as well. So, you know, we eventually get to that. But toilets are the main thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now the, the shit's out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, audience, please stay tuned. Now that we've got that covered, I, uh, trust me, we have more episode for you. OK, stick around. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just that one answer. I promise you. So. Do you mind starting by telling our audience a little bit of background about yourself and you covering film? Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, I guess, I mean, if listeners haven't gathered, I'm Australian. Uh, You know, the accent tends to give that away. Um, But I am pretty passionate about Australian films. It depends on how far you want to go back. But as a kid, my grandmother introduced me to Breaker Morant. Uh, Bruce Beresford's really great film, war film, and I was probably far too young to watch it at the time. And that kind of stuck in my mind as being like, ah, this is a pretty good Australian film. And then ever since then, I've basically fallen in love with Australian film and found it to be a sort of filmmaking that is a bit underrepresented in the international stage, but also have found it to be it's a style of filmmaking that is not even respected in Australia as a whole. And that is why I decided that starting from 2020, I basically decided I'm only going to be reviewing Australian films going forward. I still interview some international filmmakers, but I figured that I got Rotten Tomatoes accreditation and, you know, every, all the Australian filmmakers that I would write reviews for, I, got great feedback and people were deciding what they were going to do with their films on the basis of the fact that this one guy in Perth, Western Australia wrote a positive review about it. So there has been a few films that on the basis of a positive review that I've written have had a cinema release just on that, because that's the only review that's out there. And which is really terrifying because it gives you this kind of perspective of like, oh shit, what if the audience doesn't like it? You know, what if there is somebody out there who isn't interested in that? But nonetheless, there has been a market for somebody who is dedicated and focused on Australian films. And I I don't want to make it seem like I'm the only person that's doing it. There are a whole bunch of great people out there writing about Australian films. But I figured that my passion and drive to focus on Australian films and 
keenly on Australian independent films, which usually don't get any coverage whatsoever, that's where my passion lies. And so that's really the core ethos of The Curb. I, I don't know what the title of The Curb means. It's just when I started the website, it was just a name that I was like, what's available? What can I get The Curb? You know, what can I get as a .com.au that kind of sticks in your mind and The Curb stuck? It kind of makes you know, it's, it's an easy name to basically remember. Um, and so, yeah, I've been doing that for a few years now and uh, have really enjoyed doing it. And at the moment, I'm writing a book about Australian films released in 2021, which will be going on to Kickstarter in the next couple of weeks or so. So obviously, if people want to keep an eye on that, they can check out social media and stuff. Um, but I figured... That came about because I was like, there are so many, there's hundreds of Australian films released every year and people only think of a small handful like The Dry or Nitram and they're great films, don't get me wrong, but we had over 200 Australian films released uh, last year that were either feature length or short films and they're all worthwhile talking and remembering and so I figured let's do an annual book about it. So starting from last year, heading onwards, uh, I'm going to be documenting each of the years going forward for Australian films. So there you go. That's a long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we love it. And I'm already excited for that book. So yeah, uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be patiently waiting for that link to be posted and I'll be involved in that for sure. I love that kind of stuff. Thank you. Yeah. It's got, reviews it's got interviews all that kind of stuff so i'm not really selling it all that very well i've not had to sell a book before so i'm like i don't know what to do people just buy them don't they but um you know when i get there i'll, I'll have to put on my little capitalism hat and push it real hard but I, i'm a little bit passionate about it i think i've done something that's good which feels a bit strange because in australia we don't like tall poppies so you know if somebody's too proud about something then we cut them down but i'm trying to not be too proud just yet but proud enough that people get excited so you know we'll see what happens <laughs> uh you mentioned you started the curb just a few years ago had you been writing about film prior to that or writing in general yeah so uh Prior to The Curb starting, I was married and now I'm divorced and I ran a podcast with my ex-wife and that was really good and, you know, enjoyed doing that. And I decided probably early 2010s to start doing written reviews. Like I did written reviews for myself. I had a live journal like a lot of people did um, that I'm sure is live still somewhere in Russia, um, but it's terrible, uh, terrible stuff that's on there. But I enjoyed the writing process and found it really exciting. And so alongside doing this podcast, I would focus on writing and focus on doing interviews. And so it's been about a decade that I've been doing it and I've really enjoyed doing it. And it's just kind of been a little bit of a passion project, I guess. Like I understand there is an audience out there to read these kinds of things, but most of the time I'm writing them because I enjoy doing it myself. And so I enjoy putting down my thoughts, my words on the film or about the filmmaker, or maybe there's something that is important about it that people need to hear. And so I find, all right, I'll just write it down. Here's a thousand words. I put it up on the website. And if people read it, great. If they don't, then so be it. I've written it for myself and that's all that matters. Um, I have in the past had the ability to write for other websites, but maybe it's ego, maybe it's... Um, fear or whatever but I've always just found it easier to write for myself because then 
you know, I'm only responsible for what I write and I don't have to, you know, I, I don't have somebody dictating to me saying, you need to write about this or you can't write about that or something like that. Like, I, I tend to like to write about stupid stuff sometimes. Like earlier in the year, I wrote a piece about, we have an ice cream here in Australia called the Golden Gay Time. And I wrote a piece about the Golden Gay Time and the history of it and the different flavors and stuff. And I'm like, if I was writing for somebody else, they would look at that and say, you write about film. What are you writing about golden gay times for? You can't do that. And so is that comfort of being able to be like, ah, oh, I just enjoy being able to put my words out there. If somebody reads them, great. If people on the other side of the world want to interview me about it, then that's even better. It's exciting. You know, this is really, really exciting. I've never had it, never had it done before. So uh, yeah, again, apologies for the rambling answers. Just cut me off if I'm going too long. <laughs> No, seriously, that's exactly what we want. We want longer answers. That's it's <laughs> trust me. Every time we get someone who is passionate about it and is, likes to keep going with their answers, we're all for it. So don't don't cut yourself off at all. Feel free to keep going as long as you want. Oh, that's good. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's basically it. Just the the passion for Australian film, and I also found as well like. I used to write stuff like Star Wars reviews and Marvel reviews and stuff, and I. I found pretty quickly that I wasn't able to add anything to the discussion that wasn't already said. And so I think that was the other part of it where it's like, all right, I could write this and yes, people will click on it and pay attention and stuff. And that's all fine, but I'm not actually adding to the conversation other than saying, Hey, did you know that black Panther's a good film? It's like, of course we know it's a good film. It's a Marvel film. It's going to be good. That kind of thing. And so I figured that I was better off pointing out Australian films that maybe didn't have that kind of push behind them. And again, it comes back to if people want to pay attention, great. But if people don't, then so be it. But I've built up a bunch of people who are quite interested in what I cover and what I promote to the point that they will seek out films that I've mentioned. Like you were saying before we started recording, The Greenhouse, which is coming to Netflix soon, like that's a film that nobody really knows exists, but if I can give it a little bit of a push, then fantastic. That's all that matters. Yeah. Do you have any other process outside of country of origin for determining what you like to review? Like, do you have like a, I, I don't know how you go about finding the projects as they come about. Uh, it's really hard sometimes because Australian films are such a broad thing at times. Like, a lot of people aren't familiar with the fact that Mortal Kombat is technically an Australian film. Aquaman is technically an Australian film. You know, Thor, Love and Thunder, Shang-Chi, they're all technically Australian films. And how they're technically Australian films is that they're made with some percentage of Australian input from the Australian government, financial input from the Australian government. Uh, when it comes to films like Shang-Chi and Mortal Kombat, the a fair sizable chunk of the cast and the crew that were on there are actually either Australian actors or Australian crew. So helping make the actual film you know, and the sets and all this kind of stuff. So there is a technical aspect behind that. And it makes it really difficult because, again, I'm not going to be sitting down doing a review of Shang-Chi, but if I can interview the director of Mortal Kombat, for example, then which I did last year and he's a lovely guy, then I'll be able to do that because then we can get an interesting perspective on what makes this film Australian. And it's like I interviewed the director of Liam Neeson's new film, Blacklight, and that was filmed exclusively in Canberra and Melbourne last year. And 
it was just really interesting to be able to hear how he turned those cities into Washington, D.C. And so that kind of aspect, I think, is really interesting. Are they Australian films is one of the things that continually gets pushed back. I get people say to me, well, Mortal Kombat's really not an Australian film. I'm like, well, that's where it gets down to the really hard, nitty gritty of it. Was 50% of the budget or more financed from Australia? If it was, then I can consider it a completely Australian film. Mortal Kombat, more than 50% of that budget was input from both the South Australian Film Corporation and Screen Australia, which is our government body that helps fund things. And, you know, when it comes to Marvel films like Shang-Chi, for example, they put millions of dollars in to be able to secure the work for Australian creative people here in Australia. So that part of the decision of how I cover things or what to cover becomes really complex. Otherwise, it's really easy, you know, was it made in Australia? Is it an Australian filmmaker? Is it an Australian story? How does it reflect Australia as a whole? Or how does it reflect the Australian perspective of international events or international stories? And that I think is really interesting. I've kind of pivoted over the last six months more to doing interviews than writing uh, reviews. I still write a fair bunch of reviews, but I found myself getting a little bit more excited about doing interviews with people and finding out their processes and asking the exact same kind of question. What does it mean to be an Australian filmmaker? How do you keep your Australian identity in an Australian film? Because I don't know about you, but Australian films internationally, we don't do very well, you know, marketing wise or box office wise. And I think that people don't really recognize that the Australian film industry exists and we make a lot of great films and trying to break into the UK market or the US market or the European market is really hard because I maybe this is different and wrong, but my perspective is that people look at Australian films and being like, like an offshoot of American films or an offshoot of UK films, just really much lower budget. And so it's like, well, why would I watch that when I can watch a much more polished version of it from America. Why would I watch something that, you know, maybe I don't entirely understand the accent, so therefore it's harder to actually make sense of the story. Um, I know that that's a big thing that people, like, they enjoy the Australian accent. When I visited America, people enjoy the Australian accent, but trying to order a coffee in America is very hard with this accent, very, very hard. So I don't know if that's easy for people to be able to listen. I don't know. Do you guys watch films with subtitles on at all? Always. Always. Yeah. Unless it's a comedy. <laughs> yeah. It makes life so much easier when you've got the subtitles on. You know what's going on. So, you know... All of those kinds of things come into consideration when I decide on what I'm actually going to cover. And it's all with the core ethos of being able to push and promote Australian films as much as possible. I don't get any financial gain from it. I just think that they're really important. That's it. Simple as that. <laughs> I think it's kind of a shame that, I mean, to hear, yeah, when you, I feel like a lot of times with Marvel movies, like you were saying, Shang-Chi and some of the others being filmed in Australia, it's like people see that as just Hollywood. And it's like, nah, it's like the the creative energy and the people that are working on it are, that is Australian film, like you were saying. And, you know, you're kind of opening my eyes to that. We've talked to plenty of Australian filmmakers. I didn't really realize, even what you were just saying there, that, you know, the same hands that are working on, this, on both Australian film and then what people would perceive as Hollywood. And I think that 
is unfair to, you know, put two on different levels. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, certainly if we look at TV as well, like Clickbait, for example, or La Brea, I think that people would be surprised to know that they were shot in sound stages or on the suburbs of Melbourne, you know, and it's like they're, I've watched both of those series. They're great. And it's amazing how they managed to be able to transform them, transform them to American cities and American suburbs. And it's often as simple as parking the cars on the different side of the road and having different driver's seats and stuff like that. Like it's, it's bizarre or like the invisible man, for example, that's a really perfect example that was shot in the suburbs of Sydney and that's an Australian film. It was nominated for the actor award for best film. And yet people look at that and go, no, that's American. And it's like, well, it's made to look American. It's made to look like it's shot in America, but it's an Australian film through and through, Um, which I think is just, it's fascinating. I love being able to throw those kinds of films out to people and being like, did you know this was Australian? Did you know that was Australian? Or at least partially shot in Australia? Like, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy how much stuff is made here and people don't recognize that. And that's kind of what I like to be able to do is go, did you know this person did that? Did you know this person did that? And whether they go and watch it or not, or it changes how they view things, it doesn't really matter. It's just nice to know the knowledge that it's not an American-made film, you know? It's also clear from your Twitter feed that issues regarding Aboriginal Australians are very important to you. Yep. Can you just assume that we in our audience are completely uninformed Americans and talk to us about why this cause is so important? And maybe you could also recommend to us some Australian films that deal with this subject matter. Yeah, I mean, Australian you know, Australian culture goes back 60,000 years. Aboriginal culture is Australian culture. It has been a continuous culture for over 60,000 years. And the problem is, is that a lot of Australia looks at modern Australia and thinks, oh, we were just founded 200 plus years ago. So therefore our culture only goes back to when the first fleet arrived and invaded this country. And it's like, no, that's not true. We've got tens of thousands of years of continuous culture here. So we got to respect it and got to realize that this is, you know, there has never been a treaty here in Australia. There has never been any kind of acknowledgement or understanding that this land was stolen from people who had lived here, had a civilization, had, you know, a way of life that it was effectively taken away from them. And as such, one of the depressing things is, is that while Australian film has had uh, booms in the past, in the 1970s and 80s, the era of exploitation, where you've got films like Mad Max and The Man Who, uh, Man from Hong Kong, and you've got filmmakers like Bruce Beresford, George Miller, all of these great film filmmakers coming through from that era, they're mostly white men and they're succeeding because A, it was cheap to be able to make films at that point, but B, it was also a case of, you know, they were able to get the funding to be able to do it. And there were no Aboriginal filmmakers at that point. And it's really sad that that was the case. And certainly, you know, The Man from Hong Kong, which is an Australian action film, it's very entertaining. It has George Lazenby in it. It's also got a fight on top of Uluru, which is a very sacred site. And I interviewed the director of that years and years ago, Brian Trenchard-Smith. And he's like, look, I'm very proud of the film, but I'm also really sad by the fact that I didn't have the cultural knowledge and understanding that I shouldn't be staging a fight on top of one of the most 
sacred sites in Australia. And he feels terrible about that. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty impressive fight. It's got Sonny Chiba in as well, who's quite good, but it's, you know, the cultural insensitivity is there. And so for me, as a white Australian, as somebody who I'm a first generation Australian, my mum was born here. My dad is migrated from England. And so I feel that it's part of my duty as somebody who loves Australia and is trying to reconcile my relationship with Australia that I do my bit to elevate Australian filmmakers as much as possible and to support them as much as possible. And if that means, you know, interviewing them or supporting them however I can or writing reviews and stuff, then that's the main thing. I've noticed as well that in the 90s through to the early 2000s, there were not so many Indigenous filmmakers being able to make films. There are a few, there are a handful of uh, directors who are out there, but really not that many. Rachel Perkins was quite prolific during the 90s and early 2000s and is still doing great work as a filmmaker. She's uh, one of her early films, Radiance, is a really great Australian film, highly recommended viewing. And on that particular film, Warwick Thornton, who is probably the best Australian filmmaker working at the moment, uh, he is really just one of the greatest directors of all time, in my opinion. Uh, he was the cinematographer on that film. And so there was a real Indigenous creative thrust with Radiance, and that's quite enjoyable and important. But it wasn't until the late 2000s, early 2010s that what I like to call the Indigenous New Wave started in Australia with Warwick Thornton's Samson and Delilah, which came out in 2009. He won the, um, I think it's the Unsert Regard, I think it is basically the, the award for the best debut filmmaker uh, award at Cannes. And it's a really impressive film. It's a hard film to watch, but it's impressive. And it highlights a whole bunch of the poverty and the injustices that Aboriginal people have to live with within Australia. And while we have actors like David Goulpool, who unfortunately passed away last year, as being one of the great Aboriginal actors around there, a lot of his films were made with white directors and they were made with not a complete understanding of the cultural importance or significance of his culture, of his stories and so that's where you end up with a film like mad dog morgan with dennis hopper which is just uh, it's a bizarre exploitation film and that particular film doesn't really respect the aboriginal culture all that much and there's some great interviews with david talking about his work on that film where he's like this didn't make any sense i tried to ask the director about it and he wasn't interested and so i think that as a film loving person uh, as somebody who loves the country I live in we can't start to reconcile with our past until we manage to deal with that on screen and deal with that in a cultural sense too and so if that means that we're able to support indigenous filmmakers as best as possible and you know the thing that I am really pleased by and impressed by is the fact that indigenous filmmakers when they put out a film the Australian audiences go and see it. There is a box office push to go and see these films. There is an appetite for these particular stories, like Samson and Delilah, which was a huge success, like Sweet Country, which is one of my favourite films. I, you know, If you follow me on Twitter, I bang on about it a lot. It's a masterpiece. I think it's a really great film. There are also films like The Sapphires, which I know was quite successful in the US. That's really good. And then also Top End Wedding as well, which is the first 
kind of romantic comedy with an Aboriginal lead in Australia. And I love that film a lot. It's beautiful. It's got a really great story in it. And that was a huge success. And it was also a huge turning point for Aboriginal cinema too, where a lot of the films that were made about Indigenous stories or Aboriginal stories were done about the trauma and the tragedy that was inflicted upon them or that they had to endure. And that's important that we get to see that kind of stuff on screen, but it's also important that, you know, their stories aren't defined by the trauma or the tragedy. There needs to be some positivity or, or something that isn't about that at all. And so having a film like Top End Wedding, which is, you know, as the name suggests, it's a romance film, it's a wedding film, is just so utterly joyous and, and heartwarming that I think that that is a real turning point for Aboriginal cinema where it was a success it was positive. It wasn't steeped in trauma or tragedy. And we've been able to see those particular creative people push for more positive stories, both on the small screen for TV series, but also in feature films. And I think, you know, one of the things which is really important is that these stories are great. You know, we look at what white filmmakers are making. They're good too, don't get me wrong, but there's something, there is an energy towards these films, these Aboriginal stories and these Aboriginal films that just has an energy and a vibrancy that we don't see anywhere else. And I keep on wanting to shake the world a little bit to go, hey, do you know that Warren Thornton exists? And I was so thrilled last year when A24 picked up his The Beach miniseries that he did, which he shot in Western Australia. So if you watch that on A24, it's about six hours of, oh no, three hours, sorry, of six episodes of half hour each. And it's him on a beach in Broome, which is Western Australia. And it's a beautiful looking film slash TV series. And A24 showed it. And I was like, yes, finally, we're kind of getting the push to being able to have these films and filmmakers recognized internationally. Because I think like a film like Sweet Country, Again, I think it's a masterpiece, but if you took Warwick Thornton's name off it and you put the Coen brothers' name on it, it would have been winning Best Picture. You know, it's that quality, that high quality film. And yet, you know, maybe because it didn't have a marketing budget, maybe because of who knows what, but it didn't receive an audience reception that it should have done internationally in the way that it did in Australia. And that's, it's sad. You know, it's part of the reason why I keep on pushing people to watch it because it's like, this is a really great film. You don't know it exists. And yet, if it was Eastern European or maybe if it was from some part of Asia or somewhere, people would be picking it up because it's in a different language. But just because it's in English and from Australia, people don't pick it up as often. These are all kinds of things that I kind of grasp at straws a bit, trying to find out why people don't manage to watch Australian films. Because I know they're good. And like, I know that people enjoy them. And it's not, you know, sometimes I wonder if I've become uh, a little bit misguided and clouded because I've watched predominantly just Australian films. I'm like, I do watch other things too. So I keep my quality level there. I have an understanding of what's going on, you know, internationally as well. And I always wonder if I'm getting a little bit clouded. And then I show somebody a film which I'm really passionate about. And they're like, no, this was really good. I'm like, oh, good. I'm not turning it into an idiot. You know, I'm not turning into a moron or anything. Again, long answer for a question, but it's something that I'm very passionate about at the very least, because it's the least that I can do is to highlight the work of these great filmmakers where they're not getting the support or 
the push they should elsewhere. And I have an international readership. I have international people who pay attention to what I do. So even if it's just one person looking at it and picking it up, then that might transition into more people watching the film going forward. Who knows? Absolutely. I think that's fantastic. And it feels like a good moment now to ask you about 2021 specifically. And if you could tell us about a couple of, you know, maybe a quick top five or or whatever you want to do, a couple of your favorite films that came out in 2021. I can do. Yeah. And 2021 was a really weird year for Australian films because in the beginning of the year, and again, for everybody else around the world, a lot of the films that were due to come out were pushed back because of, well, everything going on, the pandemic and all this kind of stuff. So at the beginning of the year, we're supposed to have obviously blockbusters and things like that, and that didn't happen. And so we were given this kind of bizarre opportunity where Australian films, for the first time in Australian film history, topped the top three spots in the box office at the beginning of the year. And that was with films like The Dry, which is Robert Connolly's film with Eric Banner. It's a great film, really brilliant film. Penguin Bloom, which was my least favorite film of last year. Unfortunately, I did not like that film at all, but that was number two. And then High Ground as well was on there too, which is a really brilliant film about Arnhem Land. And, you know, again, if I'm talking about visually stunning films, that is a great, great film and highly recommended viewing. So it's a bit of a rarity to have those kinds of films at the top of the box office. Really impressive. But then again, there were a whole bunch of really brilliant films that just eventuated throughout the year. I mean, I'll rattle off my uh, top five because none of those films are in the top five. But, you know, we have a film called Playing With Sharks, which is a beautiful documentary about Valerie Taylor and her husband, Ron Taylor. And that's available on Disney+. Plus. It's directed by Sally Aitken, and she is a really fantastic documentarian who has made some really great films in the past. But this one, I find, might be her best work. And again, Valerie Taylor, for people who don't know who she is, she's a bit like the Jacques Cousteau of the Southern Hemisphere in a way. She was friends with Jacques Cousteau, and her and her work with Ron, her husband, in South Australia, they did a whole bunch of filming of great white sharks there. And the imagery is stunning and really brilliant. And she plays a key role in film history because her work with Ron filming Great White Sharks in South Australia was the real Great White Shark footage that they used in Jaws. And so Steven Spielberg came all the way down to South Australia, saw what they were doing, and that was part of how Jaws was made. And, you know, the, the, there is a whole fantastic discussion that goes for about 10, 15 minutes in Playing With Sharks about how... Peter Benchley was influenced by footage that he saw from the Taylors about sharks. And that inspired him to write Jaws, which in turn, obviously, you know, history has made there. Spielberg made that. So that's a really great film. Uh, Disney Plus is where you can find that. Um, There is a film called Disclosure, which is a really brilliant little indie film directed by Michael Bentham. And it's about a couple of people who their daughter was possibly abused, possibly had something done to her by their close friend's son. And we're talking four years old thereabouts. And they, the film follows the discussions that they have with each other and the complex discussions about that. It is a four-hander. There are only four people in it and the dialogue is brilliant. The direction is fantastic. And it is certainly a film that I think about a lot. It's 
what I like to think about as indie filmmaking here in Australia as being one of the best examples of what can be done on a micro budget. And then there's Nitram, which is, you know, for people who don't know, is about Martin Bryant, the guy who did the massacre back in 1996 in Port Arthur. It is a really intense film. It's got Caleb Landry Jones as the head, the main character, basically. And he won the Best Actor Award at Cannes last year. This is directed by Justin Kurtzell. He previously did The True History of the Kelly Gang as well as Snowtown. He also directed Assassin's Creed, but don't hold that against him because he is a much better filmmaker than that. And Nitram is an example of that. This is a really intense film. It is. It doesn't have a lot of violence in there. You don't see the actual massacre itself, but it is very much an anti-violence film, an anti-gun violence film. And I think it comes out in March in the US. Uh, so certainly if people are interested, put that on your list. It won the best film at the Actor Awards last year, uh, deservedly so, because it is a great film. And then the last two films are much, much, much smaller films that not very many people would be able to see or know about. Uh, one is called Laura's Choice, which is made in my little hometown, Perth. And it's about Sam, uh, Sam Lara and Kathy Henkel, who are the directors and their grandmother and mother, Laura Henkel, who, as she nears a certain age, she decides, I am going to embark on voluntary assisted euthanasia. And we don't, didn't have that in Australia at the time. And so it is the story about how she goes about doing that and traveling over to Sweden to organize to get that done. It is, it sounds darker than it is. Laura is a very funny person to be around. And so it's actually really uplifting and powerful film you will cry in it but it's yeah it's great and then one of my favorite films I think it was like my second or third favorite film from last year is a short film called The Mugai which is an aboriginal horror film that just utterly terrified me I don't get you know I love horror films I don't get terrified too often but this left me shaken in a way that I haven't been shaken since maybe the first time I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre I just found this really, really unsettling and brilliant. And it's about a two Aboriginal people. They're bringing home their baby, you know, after giving birth at the hospital. And the mother sees something in the corner of the room. And she explains what it is to the husband. She's like, there's a Mugai over there. We've got to do something about it. The Mugai is going to steal my baby. And it goes on and on and on and it escalates. And it goes for 16 minutes. It's a short film. I think it's screened at, I think it was one of the Austin film festivals last year, and hopefully it'll be made available online sometime this year, but it's a film which I just found utterly riveting and very powerful. And again, it comes back to indigenous storytelling. Like this is a story that is about a folklore or, you know, part of folklore and history and about also the stolen generation too, which is something that happened in Australia. It's a very serious event that happened where Aboriginal kids were stolen and taken away from their parents to basically, you know, make them white in some capacity, you know, take them away and teach them how to be Christian kids and, you know, not speak your own language, have to speak English and all this kind of stuff. It was a horrifying time in our history and it's still occurring today as well. And the Mugai kind of reflects that in some capacity, but yeah, they're, they're the five films that I love a lot from last year. We made some great films in 2021 and we continue to make great films. I've already seen a bunch of them this year and I'm just like, ah, oh, why aren't more people watching these films? <laughs> why aren't people paying attention? Yeah. 
Well, I know I'm really excited to add all those to the watch list and <laughs> well, when, when they're all available, because it sounds yeah. like some of them we have to wait for a little bit. So audience keep on your toes for those ones, but all the ones that are currently available, I'm going to be checking out as soon as possible. Yeah. Gotten them. I've already tried to start writing them down. As you were, <laughs> as you were I'll make sure to send you a list later on. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. That'll be, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, that would be perfect. So I did, I thought it was great that you had not only an Aboriginal story in there, but a short story, which is something that obviously is going to be topical today. I don't want to skip too far ahead to the specifics of Call Connect, which is the film that we're going to be talking about. But I did want to ask about your relationship with short films, I guess, because you said you've said that you are doing only Australian films and you mm -hmm. like to focus on stories like Aboriginal stories or stories that maybe aren't from the traditional point of view, for example. Mm. And so I was wondering how short films maybe play into that, because I think that I know I've talked about with my co-hosts and with other people just in, in general about how it seems sometimes that you want to talk about films that don't necessarily always get the, the shine they deserve. I think short films are very much in that topic where mm. I know that there's people who have created some really brilliant short films, for example. And I think that they, they're still searching for, you know, like funding for a feature film, for example, or stuff like that. And it's hard to get your foot off the ground, I think, a lot of times. So I just think I think that it's cool to see that, you, that you're interested in short films as well. And I wanted to know, I know that this is a long winded question now, but <laughs> I did want I did want to just kind of talk about what's interesting about it for me and why I wanted to ask the question before um, leading you into it. But yeah, I just I know that that's kind of a general question there, but if there is any you know, just talk about short films if you could for a little bit, like and how yeah, and how that work like plays out. Definitely, yeah. So there's a, there's a few ways to answer that, and I'll start off back in the early '90s in Australia. We had a TV show called Eat Carpet, and that was shown on SBS late at night. And Eat Carpet was this great show that went for like half an hour and it was just basically they just jam-packed a whole bunch of short films in there and you'd see the most bizarre insane stuff from around the world and sbs was known for being the show the channel that you could turn on on saturday night and watch iron chef and eat carpet and then watch a foreign language film which likely had a copious amount of nudity in it so your your saturday nights were set you could sit there and watch some bizarre stuff as well as something that was just very international and so i've always had this connection with short films because you know you watch a film and you're like ah that was 90 minutes long but it felt like there was only 20 minutes of story in there and they've jam-packed it into this feature-length film there shouldn't be that long and so i've always been a little bit passionate about them because we get to see them at film festivals. We get to see them, you know, around and about. And I kept on thinking about Eat Cup and I kept on thinking about the short films that were in Oscars. And, you know, you look at something like Harvey Crumpet, which is an Australian film by Adam Elliott, who eventually went on to do Mary and Max. Both films are really great films, but he won the Oscar for Harvey Crumpet. And I remember watching it and going, this is brilliant. Like, this is better than a lot of the feature-length films that I've seen. I don't know why more people aren't talking about it. And it became a huge success. You know, people watch it on TV and stuff, and it was great. And, you know, that was really, really nice to be able to see. And then as the years have rolled on and I've seen films like, I think it's that documentary that's like nine, ten hours long, O.J. Simpson versus America, something like that. I haven't actually watched it. I have it on DVD, but again, it's like nine hours long. I'm like, well, that seems to me like a 
TV series, you know, how's it winning Oscars? And then when Twin Peaks season three came out and people were putting it as like the number one film that they saw that year, I'm like, no, that's a TV series. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. And so I was like, you know what? If people can put Twin, Tim, Twin Peaks as their favorite film for that year, why can't I put a film like Call Connect as my second favorite film of that year? Like that's that's still one of the best short films I've ever seen. Why can't I do that? It's a film. It's in there. Like it's it the the type of thing it is is a short film. Doesn't stop it from being a film. Like I, I just didn't understand why we can't include them in conversations. And I I've had this discussion with some people in the past where they'll exclude documentaries from their top ten films of the year, for example. And it's like, why are you doing that? It's still a film. Like it's it's like oh but it's a different format of film i'm like okay well then exclude everything all the other genres then and only do one for superheroes only do one for horror film do one for comedies and just have separate lists then you know rather than bundling it all together and i just it just didn't make any sense to not you know highlight short films in this way and then a couple of years ago i think it was maybe 2020 jonathan glazer did a short film which was released on Mubi and it was one of the most unsettling short films I've seen in a long period of time where it was just about this guy who was running through the forest and there's a hole in the ground and something happens and it's like six minutes long and I rewatched it a couple of times and it's just like Jonathan Glazer as a director you expect to be a bit unsettling I'm like this guy can do that in six minutes and yet nobody's talking about it nobody's highlighting how good it is and why it's deserving of a wider conversation than just being like, did you see that short film? Yeah, it was good. It was fine. You know, I think there is a lot more that can be done with the realm of cinema than, you know, short films and long films and feature length and stuff like that. There is so much discussion about runtime that just does my head in, you know, like I, I think that short films need to be celebrated a little bit more and highlighted in a way that they really aren't. I know like lately there's been this huge discussion about drive my car is three hours long and it's like, okay, well, so is Lawrence of Arabia. Like it doesn't, who cares if it's a good film, it doesn't matter if it's three hours. It doesn't matter if it's six minutes, a good film is a good film, you know, recommend people go and watch it. And then I look at people like Chris Elena, who you've, you've talked to in the past and he's a lovely guy and his short films are just brilliant. And I'm like, Okay, so we've got all these young and up-and-coming filmmakers out there who are making some great short films that are better than the feature-length films out there. And the traditional thing, like you were saying, is that short films are often done as a way of trying to secure financing for a feature-length film. I'm like, well, that doesn't have to be the way all the time. And then I remembered Jonathan Glazer. I'm like, well, he's already got feature-length films, and yet he then went and made a short film. So what's he trying to secure funding for there if we're only going to look at it through that prison? Like he just wanted to make a great short film. This was the story that fit for that. I'm like, well, then we've just got to start talking about them as being films. Remove the short part of it. It's a film. And, you know, the people that I've recommended watch The Mugai, they're like, ah, this is perfect. And you could certainly stretch that story out to a feature length but you might lose some of the tension. You might lose some of the impact of it. And so my frame of mind is like, well, if it's perfect as it is, then just leave it as it is. And I don't expect to be changing sight and sounds, you know, annual polar or whatever 
where people go, oh, look, you know, I've put this short film and suddenly short films are winning, you know, best picture and stuff like that. I don't expect that to happen, but just like Aboriginal films, just like Australian films, if I can do my little bit in trying to change the conversation about it and get people to feel less afraid of watching them, then I've done my job because short films, there are a lot of great short films out there. And especially on YouTube as well, like Omeletto and Alter are two really great channels to be following on YouTube for short films. They put new short films up literally every single day. Omeletto is more about every type of short film. Alter is about horror films, horror short films. But you go on there and like, there's so many great films, so many great films on there. And we're just kind of ignoring them. And it's not just, you know, young filmmakers. There are, you know, filmmakers who have been around for years who have been making these things. So that's kind of my push behind short films. I just think that they deserve a little bit more respect than being the thing of like, ah, it's a short film part of the Oscars. So therefore I can go make myself a coffee or go to the toilet or something like that, you know, which is tends to be how people forget, like, like think about them. They go, I'm not going to even worry about, you know, predicting that properly because who cares about them? And like, well, the filmmakers do. Taika Waititi was nominated for a short film, you know, like David Capaldi won a short film Oscar for his short film years ago. Like these are great filmmakers and actors who are doing important work on there. So yeah, that's my frame of mind of trying to get behind them in some capacity, change the stigma against them. It certainly feels exclusionary to be like, oh, they don't have, it's a budget. I feel like it's a big issue for why you would do a short over a feature, but hmm. you're saying you push back against the term short film. Do you feel like there's a point because there's certainly a level of artistry oh, yeah. right, required to be able to evoke the right film effect through a shorter runtime. Do you feel like there is like a point where a creative product becomes a, a film like a, or a short film? where they go from just, you know, somebody making a video to it being having the film quality to make it a short? Yeah, definitely. I think that comes back to the whole decision of trying to secure financing for something. You can tell when a short film has been made as being like, this is the opening five minutes of the film. If you give me a million dollars, I'll give you the following 85 minutes for that, that kind of thing. And so it doesn't feel like a complete story. It doesn't feel like a complete narrative. Whereas short films, you know, should, I to me, they should be able to stand by themselves. They should be able to not sit there and go, oh, I'm really excited to see what happens next. Like a great film should do that anyway. Like have you kind of sitting there going, what actually happens after this point, after the credits have rolled? You want to be able to still be in the world of those characters. That's clear for sure. But you want it to be a complete story. And I think that that is what separates short films from promo reels or, you know, things like that, where they're, they're filmmakers who are like, I know I have a talent, I know I have a skill, and therefore I want to be able to, you know, get my work out into the world in some capacity. It's like that. Have you guys watched that short horror film that's going around that was on YouTube uh, with a 16-year-old made it recently? And it's on YouTube and it's really effective. I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically this guy, he's making a short film with his friends and he falls over and slips into another universe and then gets chased in this really dark and you know frightening uh, warehouse kind of thing by this creature and then stuff happens. And that I think is a really important and impressive little short film 
because of the manner that it manages to tell a complete story in itself, but also works as a promo reel. And that's the hard line to kind of balance, to straddle, to be like, how do I get my work noticed and encourage people to want to put money behind me as an artist and still actually tell us a story that you want to see more of. And that particular short film is really impressive. I can't remember the name of it to save myself, but I'll look at it later on and send it through to you. Is it The Back Rooms? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So good. It's so unsettling and terrifying. I mean, I love horror films, but yeah, it's it's amazing what that guy's done on such a small budget, but it's clear as well that it's kind of like, this is a proof of concept, you know, help me figure out more to it. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but it's just a film is a film. Like to me, a film is something that has a complete narrative and a complete story and something that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And you feel like it is, you know, you have watched a story in itself. And whether that's Twin Peaks without the credits and stuff and you've watched the whole thing all at once or, you know, again, a six-minute film, so be it. Like, I think that we're heading into an age where it's becoming a little bit reductive to classify TV shows from films and stuff like that. TV shows will always be series and things, especially if they've got seasons and stuff. They're never going to be films, but I think that there is too much of a margin between them that it becomes too prescri- too prescriptive and it makes it easier to be able to talk about them because you go, well, this is a film and it's 90 minutes of your time and people can conceptualize that. And you go, oh, this is, you know, Mad Men. You've got multiple seasons of this one story kind of thing. There is a difference there. But I think as we find ourselves moving towards this more, less cinematic and more streaming focused world, it's easier to then understand that they're really just the same thing. It's just the style of storytelling, which is not a revelation. Obviously people have said that in the past, but it's worthwhile reminding people about that because we tend to forget that that's the case. And like, you know, there are TV shows that have great one episode things that you can sit there and just watch that one episode and have a great time. I mean, Breaking Bad was notable for that, where you'd have these standalone episodes like The Fly, for example, and you watch that and you're like, well, I don't need to watch the rest of it because this one episode gave me everything I wanted and it's brilliant. And that in itself is kind of like a short film, but the conversation about like labeling things becomes it's a bit frustrating, but I understand why we have to do it because it makes it easier for people to understand what it is. But on the same hand, I think that there is a stigma associated with it where you go watch this short film. And it's like, it's so funny as well. Cause people go, ah, oh, you know, watch this short film. And they, and in their mind, they're like, why would I watch a short film when I have a TV series to watch? And it's like, okay, but one 16 minutes of your life. And the other one is 10 hours. Like just slip it in between episodes, maybe. I don't understand why people are like that, but they can be so, uh, yeah, offended by the notion of sitting there and just watching a short film. <laughs> and it frustrates me. <laughs> totally. We're, we're definitely pro short film on this podcast and our audience knows that. So yeah. speaking of short films, we've alluded to this already, but when we reached out to you to have you on the podcast, we wanted you to choose the film that we would discuss today. And The movie that you chose was Call Connect, an Australian short film from 2019. And we'd love to know what made you decide to choose that movie today. 
Well, I figured because it's a film like the filmmakers, Indiana Bell and Josiah Allen, I've been so greatly impressed by their work as filmmakers. And they've made a few shorts. They made uh, Call Connect and they've made The Recordist and they made another short film as well. But those two are readily available for people to watch on uh, Omeletto, I think it is, and maybe even Alter as well. But I've just been impressed by what they can do in a short period of time. And I watched Call Connect because the local film festival here in Perth called the Revelation Film Festival will show short films before the feature film. And usually they're Australian made short films. And so you get a bit of a taste of this lovely filmmakers who are being able to tell this story and then you get a feature alongside it and that's enjoyable. And so I didn't expect to be seeing a film that would kind of shake me. And I can't, I can't even remember what the feature it was paired with was because it was nothing like what Core Connect was. And so I sat there and I watched it and I was just like, this is phenomenal. It's a one shot, you know, close pull in camera, pull in of this woman who is on a first day at a, you know, a helpline for people who are mentally ill and her dealing with a conversation with a suicidal man on the phone was just dealt with in an empathetic and caring way and also an informed way, which, you know, I, I, my work in the past has been associated with mental health in some capacity. So I've dealt with counselors. I've dealt with people who are doing exactly what this, this character is doing. And it's written and directed and performed in a way that feels honest and feels true and feels authentic. And again, it's done in 16 minutes. And so I then, as soon as I got out of that screening, I emailed them. I was like, I've just seen you a short film. Can I interview you? And then I interviewed them and they're lovely people and they're super young. And they're just like, we want to be able to tell good stories. And it doesn't matter if they're short and feature length and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, you've made a great one. And I've grown to know them and appreciate their work a lot. And I'm, you know, even though I've just talked about short films for so much, I'm excited to see what they do as feature filmmakers because it is, you know, if they can do this with a short film, then what can they do with a feature film? And both Core Connect and The Recordist are films that just really work on a genre level and really work and grip the viewer immediately in a way that is really unexpected. And so part of the reason I wanted to talk about Core Connect was I know you guys really like talking about short films and supporting indie filmmakers. And so I was like, well, there's nobody who's more indie than... Indiana and Josiah, who I really respect, they have a small production company in South Australia that they built up themselves. And, you know, they've been recognized by international film festivals, which is great. And they have a dedicated uh, audience here in Australia as well. But any chance I can to shine a light on them, I think they're part of the future of Australian film industry. Them and Chris, who I really respect Chris as a filmmaker. I think that he's a great filmmaker and certainly whatever he's done, you know, whether it's refused classification or audio guide, which I think audio guide is just perfect. That's a perfect little film there. And again, a perfect little short film as well. I just like getting excited about the future of Australian film because we see these established filmmakers out there and they're doing a good job, but you can tell that they've already told the stories that they wanted to get into filmmaking for. And so, and now they're just trying to maintain a career or some capacity. And that's good. Don't get me wrong. Um, They're still making good stuff, but it's the new people 
like Indiana, like Josiah, who I'm like, all right, this is the future of Australian film right here. And it's really good. <laughs> so I hope you guys liked it as well. And if you didn't, it doesn't matter. It's 16 minutes of your life. You know, it doesn't matter. Like it's not a huge endeavor. So yeah, thank you for letting me talk about it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm, that makes me excited to get into a little bit of a discussion about it because hearing how excited you are, obviously you picking it means that you're a fan of the movie, but hearing that kind of background on it makes, makes me think that we'll have a little bit of an enjoyable discussion. Mm. Before we do go any further, we have to do a quick spoiler warning for Call Connect, the Australian short film from 2019. It is available to watch on YouTube, like we mentioned, on Amuleto. So if you haven't seen it yet, stop listening now. Go watch it and get back to us. For everyone else, that was your spoiler warning for Call Connect. So we can jump into it now. I know I loved it. I don't want to say too much quickly. Why don't you, Gardner and Taran, give your opening thoughts on the film? Because uh, it sounds like we're all itching to share to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just um, flat out blown away, blown away by this film. I mean, um, it really hooks you in from the very first five seconds. There's something magical about the sound design and the camera operation and of course the acting i mean the actress that completely carries the entire thing her performance is astounding the dialogue is terrific that conversation feels so real and anyone who has dealt with uh, mental illness or depression or knows people who have dealt with it and uh, like really gone through the ringer with it has had a conversation that's maybe not, maybe not that exact same conversation, but there's, there's themes, there's tidbits that you can recognize and it feels so real and so raw. And you just develop very, very quickly, this tremendous sense of empathy for both of these characters. And I just, when I watched it for the first time, I just could not look away. I was so uh enveloped by the story and then when i watched it the second time i was able to pay a little bit more attention to some some of the the technical stuff that was going on and yeah i mean i just this was an, an incredible pick andrew uh i can't wait to really get in and discuss it well that's good i'm glad <laughs> and i i mean i'm just going to be echoing a lot of what they were saying but it, it like it like most of the things like an effective film it, it captures you like immediately right and I feel myself just sitting in and in as the cameras zooming and I I was watching with my housemate and he had the same kind of effect he was like walking by and it started and then he sat down and we were locked in right and it grabs you and it doesn't let go and it it says so much right and it speaks volumes um from different aspects I'm sure we'll we'll dive into but. Again, yeah, thank you for recommending and looking forward to more of their work, uh, hopefully in the near future. Yeah, you're welcome. And again, as I was saying, the recordist is there on, I think it's on Maletto. So if you like what they do for this one, check that out. But yeah, that that opening scene, well, not the opening scene, the whole thing is the opening scene. Um, but Caitlin O'Loughlin is a just a really wonderful actress and presence here. Uh, she does a really fantastic job of being the sole person really on screen. And the way that they shot it, Brennan Rock was the person who is the other voice on the phone there. And he was in the room as well. So there was that 
communication there, but she didn't have eyeline sight with him at all. So it was still just a voice elsewhere. But I just found that her performance, again, is so informed and, and considerate and powerful in a way that I didn't expect watching this kind of film. And, you know, there is a there is a, an understanding of the stress that people who are counsellors, especially phone counsellors, who aren't able to actually see the person that they're talking to, um, the stress that they go through is really palpable here, especially for somebody who's thrown literally in the deep end. But then also the stress of the, the person on the line who is trying to be as open and as vulnerable as possible with a complete stranger and then finds themselves in a situation where they have to be the person that is supporting and coaxing the new person. And it's the shift of dynamic there, which just, it moves in between the performance of, you know, Caitlin's performance there and her trying to wrangle the situation as delicately as possible. And then the guy that's on the phone and her utilizing you know, the script that she's got in front of her to try and guide him to tell us where you live so we can send somebody to help you and things like that. He's like, I know what you're trying to do. Don't do that. And I think that part of the reason why this film works so well is because of the latter shift where she gives him that critical advice about writing his letter. And there's a beautiful moment of dark comedy here where he's like, are you telling me to rewrite my suicide letter? And it's like, at the moment, you, you think you sit there and you think, I think this film could really collapse right here or this conversation, at least between these two people, could collapse right here. But she says the right thing and it coaxes him to live another day. And I think that is a really, it's hard to be that kind of vulnerable on screen and it's hard to have that kind of vulnerability as a voice performance as well for Brendan. But it works so well. And it's, it's a bit of a gut punch of a film as well, especially as the conversation closes and then the camera starts pulling back and, you know, the supervisor comes along and, and reality starts to filter back into the whole situation. And you just think, we forget how much these kinds of things are happening on a day-to-day situation. We forget what's happening with the person that's sitting at the traffic lights next to us. Why are they, you know, acting the way that they are? We forget what's happening with our colleagues and what's going on internally. And I think that this is a film that kind of reminds us of all of that. And it, it asks us to consider what is going on, how people deal with what they're dealing with. And I think that's really important. So that's, I'm glad that you all like it because it's, you know, sometimes as much as I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter if you don't like it, you know, it's 16 minutes. When you're really passionate about something, and I'm sure you all feel this way as well, like it becomes personal. <laughs> it becomes like part of your life. And certainly talking with Josiah and, and Indiana about this film and having seen them grow as filmmakers, I'm like, I, I feel like I have no sway over what they do as filmmakers whatsoever, but I feel passionate about what they do because it's clear they're putting so much of themselves in there as well and part of me gets a little bit protective about that because it's like this is a small film that nobody's really gonna rock up and see online it's not you know on the top of your netflix queue or anything like that so you are watching it as a recommendation from myself from you guys and that can be hard certainly because the uncertain the unknown uh, but it's good to know that you liked it yeah 
Yeah, and I know we've already praised the performance in it, and I think there's obviously a good reason for that, because it's the core of this film, along with, I'll say, Gardner, what you mentioned, things like the sound design and the camera work. But I think all of that is something that you can even get more of. I think Gardner, it was you that said this again, in a second viewing, because mm -hmm. I know... Like, for example, I'm on the edge of my seat. We were just talking about the wrap-up and how it could very easily go in a different direction when she says the right thing. But I'm on the edge of my seat looking, like, I know how long this film is. And I'm like, there's not a lot of time to wrap this up. You better figure out, because it's not looking like you've got this handled at all right now at a certain point that's very far into the runtime of the film. And I think that because I'm that much on the edge of my seat, I'm not able to see things like... The performance as much the first time it's more of a it's a visceral reaction to it a visceral visceral response to it and then on a second view and you can really appreciate some of the stuff that like even at the beginning you can see her how surprised she is that she's getting a phone call at first and that was something that was right over my head at the beginning until that final line where it's like oh your phone's not even supposed to be set up yet but on a second on a third viewing you can see it in her eyes that she's not prepared to be taking this phone call at all but there's little things like that throughout it. I mean, her performance is amazing. Well, I think what you were saying, Duncan, really speaks to the quality of her performance in that on your first viewing, you were so enraptured that you weren't even, you know, paying attention to the kind of peripheral stuff that was going on in the film. You were just solely focused on, is she going to like make it through this phone call? Is he going to make it through this phone call? And when you have something that is like so fundamentally important to the story and to the execution of the film that is, is done so well that you don't even notice the other stuff, I think that speaks to the strength of that particular element. Yeah, and I also want to just say, we've mentioned that it was Brendan Rock who did the voice, but he also does a great job. His performance is very well done in, you know, obviously more limited aspects because you can't see his face. But I think that... And especially there's some lines that we mentioned that bring a little bit of humor into it. And I think he's got a couple that kind of in like the worst way possible, because it's he's asking her things like, are you really asking me to rewrite my suicide letter right now? And but it is funny. N-O-N-E. Yes, that part. Right. We were we were talking about that before. Um, there's there's multiple points, I think. And it's his performance is also very, very well done. So I wanted to mention that before we went any, any further. Yeah, it's so hard to do voice work as well and convey emotionality. And I think that certainly over the past two years, as we've all been wearing masks and stuff like that, like I've I've appreciated how much verbal communication is such a key part of things and understanding people's emotionality and not being able to read faces has been such a really interesting and, and you know, thought-provoking thing about obviously the world that we live in and how we communicate with one another, but also conveying emotionality through your voice is, it's a really hard thing to do. And I think, you know, from my perspective, at least Australian voices can often sound a little bit sarcastic at times or sound at least a little bit like nonchalant, like we don't care kind of thing because we have this very much, no worries, mate, attitude, which is very like, she'll be right. It's not a problem. And I think Brandon brings that a little bit to this performance, this, this very Australian humor there as well, which is so, you know, it's in the script, of course, but in the way that he delivers it is just really, really powerful. 
And I think the visual structure of the film as well, again, the, the close push in and things like that is really great too. But on repeat viewings, and I watch this maybe once a year because I think it's a great film, but repeat viewings has shown me the really great set design of just having the, the folders up behind her head and having the bland, boring office structure there as well really makes us draw our eye into her as well, which of course the camera is forcing us to do anyway, but we're already being centered on her as an individual throughout the frame rather than, you know, just being like, where are we looking away? And I think the first time I watched it, I didn't realize it was one shot. And then I rewatched it again. I was like, ah, no, like, cause your mind places cuts where there aren't cuts. And I didn't like, I, cause I expected it to cut away from the, the colleague who was trying to train her and stuff. Um, but no, it's all in one fluid take. And that, again, really makes me just respect the performances even more because to do all of that, to go on that kind of emotional roller coaster in such a short period of time in one take is just, and that's why it stuck with me as well. It's the right creative choices to make sure that this is all in service of the plot that makes it strengthen and more powerful and important. Yeah. And you actually like have a relationship with and have have spoken to uh, extensively with the filmmakers did they say whether that was like a massive pain if at any point they thought maybe they would uh, let's throw some cuts in at some point or I mean clearly they made the right decision like you were saying like that long take is like part of like what makes the film work so well but I'm curious if they said anything about that to you. Oh, I can't remember. It's been a few years since I interviewed them about this particular film. I've spoken to them about their other work since then, but I, I can't remember, but I do know that there was a real creative choice for what they've done here. Uh, and if you go on their Facebook page as well, there's some great behind the scenes shots of the the manner that this is set up. And it's clear that from the get-go, this was always just meant to be one nice fluid shot. And I think that from my understanding, at least their decision to do it in that way was just because as soon as you cut your attention from the conversation is distracted, is pulled away. And how best to reflect the fact that she can't go anywhere. You know, she is on the phone with this person. And if we cut, then it's like we're escaping that conversation in itself. And so her being stuck there on the phone means that we're stuck there on the phone with her. And cutting away just distances us from the actual conversation itself. And so that is really, you know, again, it comes back to how mature and forward thinking these filmmakers are. They just understand what works in best service of the actual story itself. And that is just, it's a bit of a rarity, you know, it's a great bond that they've got. It's a great, you know, pairing that they've got together. The script was written by Indiana herself. So it's a, you know, soul script and the two of them have directed it, but it's just, it's really powerful. I need to actually go back. I should have listened to the interview that I did with them, but I get a bit, those early interviews that I used to do, I, I'm like, oh God, why are you asking that? <laughs> but I might need to re-listen to it as well. Um, they are very approachable people too. So if you want, I can always give you their contact details too, but they're lovely people. And again, they're mature. They know what they're making. They know what they're doing and they know the importance of it. And they also do it in a way that, they know how to get their film noticed by international film festivals in a way that isn't showy or like, you know how like a lot of filmmakers will try and do something. There's a short film that is explosive, like 
you know, Quentin Tarantino film in five minutes kind of thing. And that's fine, but it's also, this is them showing what they can do in a short period of time and getting the attention of people internationally in a way that I really respect. And I think you're absolutely correct in saying the camera work and everything is helping the story. Not only does it look really cool, but it also does things like push in on her face, giving you that claustrophobic feeling that she's also experiencing at that time. And then once the call is over and it's went well, that's when it finally releases and it draws back again. And it's almost like this breath of relief that you're experiencing with her. And like you were saying before, Andrew, I think that the first time watching it, it was like about three quarters of the way through that I started asking, wait, has this cut yet? Your mind almost like puts cuts in, like it assumes that it must have cut to her picking up the phone or something like that. But the lack of cuts, I think, brings your attention to what it's doing in a very positive way. Very much so. And that's the thing is like, you know, for me, at least growing up, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the film that made me understand what editing could do because it was the, you know, the girl on the hook and everybody thinks, well, the hook goes through and the hook never goes through her. And so it's, that was the film that really forced me to understand how editing works and how our mind works with films as well. And not always, but it's films like Call Connect that make me remember how our minds work, how we respond to the language of cinema and how our mind plays tricks on us in some capacity because of those things, exactly what you're saying, Duncan, that it, it makes us think, did she pick up the phone? Like, did, was there a cut to the phone? That kind of stuff. And I find that really fascinating because, you know, we, we don't know what our minds always are doing. We're not conscious of it. It's just something that happens as a passive thing while we're sitting there watching movies. And I love being conscious of what we're witnessing, what we're being able to experience and, and watch. And Core Connect is a film that the use of the film language is just so brilliant. <laughs> like I just find it so, I find it exciting. I, I just like being excited by films. And this is a film that gets me excited. In particular, one of my favorite things about this is, uh, like you touched on Andrew earlier, we touched a little bit on the, on the voice performance of, I'm sorry, can you remind me the actor's name? Brendan Rock on Brendan's performance and the way that he is able to, and obviously this is in, due in great part to the script as well, create such a vivid three-dimensional character without us ever seeing his face. And it's a recognizable character. I feel like, you know, anyone who's, who's been around and, and um, uh, socialized and met people has met someone that's kind of uh, pretty nihilistic and, and pretty difficult to to reason with very very stuck in their ways except in this instance it's a very dire situation that he's put this operator in and it's just something that you don't see I mean even even in uh, movies or shows where you know the character who's on the other side of the phone it's such a it's, a, it's something that you see often in in this kind of media and it just feels, it feels flat. There's something that's really magical about the way that they're able to breathe life into this character who we never see. And I think part of that, the majority of that is due to his performance, but part of that is also to like things he does throughout, like when he gets up and he, I'm closing the window, chill out. 
like that kind of atmospheric element and the sound design of the, the slamming and everything it, that dread like really grips you and you're like why do like you care about him i guess because he's kind of like an extension of her like in that instance and then as it goes on and you learn more about him and who he is and his life story and and the the letters he's written it fleshes him out more and more and that's something that i was i was obviously impressed with every aspect of this film but that's something that really something that really stood out to me was his character because i can't think of another time when i've seen like a completely off-screen character get that kind of uh development and characterization and, and humanization yeah i agree completely and it's just so impressive that that moment as you're saying the the window closing and it's just yeah it's what we see and what we don't see and so we're only relying on sound yeah it gets you yeah it gets you <laughs> it's so good <laughs> yeah and i think it also has to do with indiana's script because I think that, for example, I don't think it hits as hard if he's not as good of a writer as he is. And th this is something that I've brought up on the podcast before, but I'm, I'm always interested when artwork is done, or I've mentioned specifically jokes, for example, in movies. Like if someone tells a joke that's unique and seems like it's not the tenth time it's been told, or if someone's an artist and their painting is actually something that looks good, for example, or if they're giving you a poem and the poem is something that actually sounds like a poem that would be hailed as good. I couldn't tell you even because I don't know poetry that well, I couldn't tell you what makes a poem good or not, but I could tell you that it was well written here and it worked. And I think that it enhances his character in ways that I think is similar to what you're saying about how he's given a lot of development in a completely off-screen character. Yeah, very much so. And I think uh, that is a great point that you make about like artwork being good you know we we look at things and you think how did they make that good and how did they make it so that that particular piece of artwork or that particular letter has its own voice that is uh, you know tuned to that particular one character that feels like it's written from that character it's you know one of the questions which i love kind of considering uh, whenever i watch films that have those kinds of things because it makes all aspects of the production so exciting uh, here, of course, it's a letter and it's being written out. So we know that Indiana is the person, but sometimes it might be a painting or sometimes it might be something else that is a creative entity that is just there that feels so raw and real and within a creative entity by itself, like within a film, which is its own creative entity. I find that all of that just so fascinating. And it's obviously the allure of cinema that we have all these mysteries. They have all these creative things that we just keep on getting pulled back to. And we love it because that's what make movies. That's what's, that's what makes movies so enjoyable and so exciting that we get to experience these deeply human things for however long it is. It's great. I love it. <laughs> Tarin, you have anything to add? Well, I mean, it's more so just kind of parroting what you guys have been saying, but I feel like when the phone call starts, he's for me, I don't like the guy, right? Like, and if he, you know, in the first few minutes, it's like, if you do it fine, you kind of just call on to raz this girl and give her a hard time. Like he's, you know, he's being difficult. And at the same time, you know, he's like, no, I've heard it before. Like obviously frustrated with what he's getting from calling this helpline. And then, you know, as we get more and more, like you guys were saying about his character, it's, you know, this is a, troubled artist or you know just a person right it's not like somebody that's 
more or less trolling the poor girl on the other side of the phone. It's, you know, this is his frustrations that have all been percolating up and this is how he's dealing with it, right? The development, like you guys were saying, of his character off screen through just his voice is it's very dynamic. Very much so. That's, I mean, I, I'm glad that, again, once again, that you all like it and that you have, you're seeing the same thing that I get to see in it, that it's well-written and well-performed and well-directed. Um, it's nice to know, I guess, the, the feedback loop of knowing that I, I have taste. <laughs> it's always nice. <laughs> we always like to know when people, when, you know, the things that we love or champion is received well by other people as well. Yeah. So sweet, sweet validation. It's nice, right? Exactly. It's what we all seek, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the chance to be able to talk about it as well. I was a bit nervous bringing up a short film and I'm like, you know what? I've seen these guys. I've listened to their work. I know that they're going to be behind it. So I'm glad that you all resonated with it and uh, enjoyed it too. And thank you again for allowing me to bring something that was off kilter to you know, be able to discuss because I know the allure of being able to talk about big things is there, but it's nice to be able to talk about the small stuff too. Thank you for bringing it to us seriously, because I honestly was blown away by it. And we are going to get into the actual final thoughts and readings as long as we've touched on everything that you guys wanted to bring up. Yeah, I'm good. I do want to just mention that because we did kind of gloss over the, I mean, Andrew, you brought it up a good amount, but I don't think we necessarily said any of our piece about the, or I didn't at least get the chance to, about the mental health ideas that are brought up. Because I think that's another thing, and it's actually kind of similar to the idea of art being believably well done in a film. It's This is very believably well done, and it's something that could easily go wrong in a way that I think you could point it out and be like, okay, there's something off about this and it's not working for me. And I think it's probably never easy to do that in the film to make a scene feel very organic but when you're dealing with a topic like this which is so difficult to talk about for so many people and so polarizing in many ways that and uh, you know in ways that it maybe shouldn't be even in ways where we should, maybe people should be more open to discuss it and i think that it is kind of beautiful that it's got this core idea and this element of it that i'm glad that you not only brought a great film to us but also one that is touching on things that are so important and so well handled with grace in this film. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful you appreciate that aspect too, because it's I mean, mental health is serious. Like it's something that we need to talk more about as an international thing. We have a mental health crisis that is going on around the world with people with depression, anxiety, loneliness. Throughout the lockdowns and the pandemic and stuff like that, the aspect of loneliness has been increased even more. And yet the need to connect with people, whether it's, you know, via Zoom like we're doing or on the phone or anything like that is really important. But it's also hard for people to be able to do that. And I think what really works so well about the script is that, you know, Indiana has in, imbued this character with the strength to be able to call somebody up for help because that in itself is really hard. And it is often, you know, it, it can be perceived as being an easier thing to just not reach out for help because you might be an intrusion on somebody's day. You might feel like you're going to be an intrusion on somebody's day that you might feel like you're going to be an annoyance or something like that. And that's not the case. Like these, you know, counselors, friends, family members are there to help and support. And that's what I love about this is that it, 
it shows that the courage to be able to actually call at a time of need is there, but also the knowledge that somebody is there going to be able to help and reach out for assistance is equally important. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a great aspect and it's done in a, a really informed and uh, well presented manner, because as you were saying, it could have been done in a very disrespectful way and, you know, it would be a completely different discussion if that was the case, but I think it's done with all the consideration as possible. Absolutely. So with all that being said, that does bring us to the end of a great discussion of Call Connect. Thank you for recommending this movie again. And that does mean it's time for final thoughts and ratings. As always, we let our guests go first. So that means, Andrew, you do have the floor here. We let you know beforehand, but we're doing it out of 100. And you get to bring your own unit. So... Whenever you're ready, let us know exactly how much you do love this film. Well, let's let's go with the unit of like calls in the middle of the night because that's kind of what it feels like. So this is like, for me, I think this is a perfect film. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've had many hundreds on the show, but it's probably as close to 100 as possible. So 100 calls in the middle of the night is the best way of putting it. But I think that this is just, again, I'm echoing what I've already said, but I think this is a real positive sign for the future of Australian film. Uh, I'm excited about these filmmakers, everything that they've done. I want to get behind and support them as much as possible. But even if, you know, I didn't love the recordist or their other work, or even if this was the only short film that they made, this is still a really powerful and important short film. And it's this kind of film that I like to be able to present to people and say, see, we need to be discussing short films in the same conversation as we are feature length films because the year that this came out this was my second favorite film of the year and that's a hard thing to be able to do and you know it's it came out in uh 2019 and my favorite film of the year was portrait of a lady on fire and so you know we're talking about like you know bona fide classics of cinema versus you know alongside something that rarely gets the discussion or respect that it needs and call connect is that kind of film um so yeah hundred calls in the middle of the night completely. I love this film a lot. <laughs> awesome. I, I love to hear it. Gardner, that means you're up next. Yeah. I mean, without sounding too samey, uh, I'm going to agree with basically everything Andrew said. I cannot think of a single thing I would change about this film. I found it to be engrossing, well-acted, technically perfect on just about every level. I'm going to go with 100 disconnected phone lines out of 100. I can't recommend it enough. Tarn, you're up next. Well, I was I was thinking I was going to have to dock points, but now I'm having difficulty pinpointing anything just because we have talked through all of its uh, you know, great great film qualities and it's not anything there's no there's no one point where it's like, "Ah, oh, that doesn't need to be there." Maybe just for the point of being difficult, I'll give it 99 binders out of 100. But this really is like an emotive film and powerful, like we've all said. But it, and it, yeah, it's, it's a film that needs to be out there right now, too, I feel like. So glowing reviews, Dunks. Yeah, I definitely didn't think that I was going to have to be like the low man with a 98 over here. But I'm going 98. I'm going with 98 landlords out of 100. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And just like you guys said, though, like, I don't think 
there's even a better way to tell this story. I don't know if there is any notes that you could possibly have on it. Like, I think that everything is probably as perfectly well done as you can, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I just have a hard time ever giving a hundred to anything, even things that I consider perfect. So that maybe I'm being a stick in the mud here, but 98 seems pretty good. And that is definitely, by the way, the highest collective score we've ever given anything on this podcast. So absolutely. That's impressive. I, I'm glad to have been the being able to bring the film that has that honor. Uh, so thank you. And I hope I've not kind of badgered you into being like, you have to like this film. <laughs> but I think the discussion was really good. And, you know, uh, I think that we all got to the, got to that point collectively. So that's nice to see. Absolutely. And I think it says something about the discussion that I had kind of settled on a 98 and I was swayed very close to being just like giving it the hundred and just agreeing <laughs> with you guys because everything we said during it, it was like i mean there's no notes there's literally nothing you can say about it that's not executed at least in a, a very well done way and if not arguably perfect so yeah and i'm gonna go ahead and uh call myself a hypocrite here because uh uh last week's episode we reviewed a movie and i said i couldn't give it 100 because nothing is perfect <laughs> i gave this a 100 but what can i say this was actually fucking perfect so sue me <laughs> that's fantastic it's good to hear i'm glad that i've made you uh uh you know having a bad face within a, one episode it's great to see <laughs> thanks gardner hey you know what i'll admit it it's good a quick turnaround yeah we love it we love to hear it so that does conclude the episode we want to thank you for being such a great guest and for again picking a film that we all obviously loved and for taking the time out of your day we know that again this has been another long one which our audience is always a fan of so we appreciate that and we appreciate getting the time to talk to you i do have one final question so i hope that that's not going to be sticking you around for too long no go for it thank you awesome so this is one that we like to ask all of our guests and it seems to be one that we actually said to you before the podcast started recording is so up your alley and you've already mentioned some great answers to this already so we're hoping that maybe you could sprinkle in a couple more if you don't mind but we're looking for independent and maybe independent australian would be perfect for this episode independent australian filmmakers that we in our audience should check out for the future yeah i mean there's so many great filmmakers so many really brilliant ones i think i mean while he's not independent, Rob Connolly is somebody who isn't recognised uh, internationally as being one of the best Australian filmmakers around there. Uh, the Dry, as I mentioned earlier, is a great film, but his earlier work is also really good. I know that people like to dig on Sam Worthington a bunch, but Paper Planes is a film that he made that is really, he gives a great performance in there. It's a well-rounded performance. So Rob Connolly's filmography is one that you really want to check out. The same goes with Ray Lawrence as well, who is a filmmaker who's only made three films and they're all really great films. Bliss, Lantana, which is my personal favorite Australian film and Jindabyne. And these are films that just kind of, you know, if there's anybody else who had these kinds of films in their career, he'd be celebrated as much bigger person than he is so ray lawrence is also great rolf to is my personal favorite australian filmmaker again another australian filmmaker who's kind of pushed to the side and doesn't get respected in the way that he should do i mentioned warwick thornton earlier as well he's probably equal to rolf to as well but warwick's got a few more films to catch up on rolf there but we have so many great australian filmmakers here that it's hard to kind of uh understand where they sit in the world because of the fact that while they might not be technically independent here, 
they're independent elsewhere in the world. And that makes it really hard because it's a bit like, you know, we do great work here and it needs to be celebrated and respected and all this kind of stuff, but it's never highlighted in the way that it really should be. And that's kind of the core thing that I've been talking about today, but we have filmmakers like Jennifer Pedem, who is one of my favorite documentarians out there. And she has done some really great films. Most notably her film Sherpa is really perfect. It's a powerful, powerful documentary about the Sherpas who go up Mount Everest. And it's particularly about a period of time in the early 2010s where there was an avalanche and there was quite a few Sherpas who died. And it's all about the people who climb up Mount Everest and all this kind of stuff. So Jennifer Pedem's career is really interesting. Uh, she recently, I think it was 2020, she signed an agreement with the Obamas to make some films with them as well. So while she's technically independent because nobody's really heard of her, she is at least getting the attention of people like the Obamas. And that's really exciting. So Jennifer Pedem is one of my favorite filmmakers. Gillian Armstrong is, of course, as well. Uh, gosh, I could go on and on and on. A small plug, of course, The Curb is where you'll find me supporting all of these people. But I think that I'm always surprised by new people and new filmmakers who come up and new people have new stories to tell. And I think the sad thing is as well is that for Australian films, we only tend to have, like Australian filmmakers tend to only have one film and that's it because it's too hard to get another one off the ground. And so I'd like to be able to say these filmmakers have done a lot, but sometimes they've only done one film. And that's the sad reality of filmmaking here in Australia. We don't have studio system uh, like the US. We don't have a really strong bolstered film industry here. But yeah, look, you're going to find a lot of great stuff out there. There is a lot of great Australian filmmakers and indie filmmakers. But if I go closer to your neck of the woods as well, I want to highlight Robert McCohen, whose film The Killing of Two Lovers came out last year. He is as indie as they come. And I did an interview with him last year and such a lovely guy. So gentle and kind and everything. I love that film a lot. It's one of my favorite films from last year. And I don't think people watch that enough. And I don't think that people know of his films enough. Like he is just so independent that it hurts. And yeah, great filmmaker as well. So if people haven't heard of him, watch his work as well. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that you're a fan of that. Killing of Two Lovers is on Hulu yep. for our audience. So go check it out. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. You're a big fan of it, are you, Gardner? I watched it. I watched it for the first time a couple of weeks ago and I was just astounded. I, I loved it. Yeah. It made me want to check out more of his work. Yeah. I highly recommend doing that. And I was, I was not surprised to know that he um, was mentored by Kelly Reichardt as well. So if you've seen Killing of Two Lovers, you get an understanding that his film making style is very much in the line of Kelly Reichardt's work as well. So yeah, that's another indie filmmaker I love. She's my favorite personally, but yeah. There you go. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a great answer. That's again, adding it to the list or adding all of them to the list. Awesome stuff. We got a lot of recommendations out of you. We, we might've surpassed like the most recommendations in an episode, which is amazing because we've, we've been lucky to have some great recommendations in the past. So that's saying something and it's a pretty impressive. So thank you for, for that. Thank you. You give me a soapbox and I'll stand on it all night long. So, you know, you've done that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So our audience will be sure to be checking that out as well. And hopefully maybe a little bit down the line, we'll be seeing some of them on the podcast. Hopefully we'll see about that. Definitely. If we're lucky enough, fingers crossed, look out for that audience, but check out their work either way. 
to our audience, also be sure to check out Andrew's work, like he said, writing for The Curb, uh, as well as on Twitter at The Curb AU. Do you have anything else you'd like to plug before we let you go? Just reminding, I've got a book coming up soon. So follow me on Twitter. You'll hear about it. It's going to be out via Kickstarter. Uh, the artwork, I can reveal. I haven't really told anybody who's done the artwork for it, but I may as well do it here. So the artwork is by uh, some Australian, an Australian duo uh, called We Buy Your Kids. And if you buy Mondo posters and stuff like that, they do Mondo posters and stuff. They do some really kind of bizarre out there stuff, which I really like. And I've been friends with them for a period of time and love their work quite a lot. So if you're interested, have a look. We buy your kids. It's all one word or W-B-Y-K. And they do some really exciting, different work. And I was really honored to be able to have them do the cover art for the book as well. It's I love it. Uh, of course, I love it. I wrote the darn thing. But, you know, I love their work that they've done to help, you know, put it in front of the eyes of people. So hopefully people like it. Uh, but it'll be in about two or three weeks before it goes out live. So yeah, check it out on the Twitter. It'll be on Kickstarter. And uh, there'll be an ebook and a physical book. And again, it's all about Australian films released in 2021. There's a whole bunch of really great interviews in there. Uh, everybody from Rafe Spall, uh, who did an Australian film, to Stephen Curry, to Bruce Beresford, and a whole bunch of creative people as well, like Angela Little, who did is a composer for one of the films, and Aaron Roche, who did the costume design for High Ground. I'm trying to cover all aspects of production because we tend to focus on filmmakers, directors, and actors and producers predominantly, and it's like... They're not the only people who make a film come to life. So I've talked to sound designers, the sound designer for Nitram and Mortal Kombat, the editor of Nitram. Uh, there's a whole bunch of really great people who uh, have interviews in the book. And I'm really excited to be able to share it with people and make it an annual thing as well. So people know that Australian films exist. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no, seriously. Thank you. I mean, this has been great. And Everyone look forward to that. Uh, we'll be retweeting that out. So always a good reason to follow us on Twitter at Good Data Pod. Just a little plug right there for, for that as well. And um, and you'll just catch it if you if you follow if you follow Andrew. You'll be you'll, you'll be good, and you you won't even have to to wait for the retweet. You'll get it immediately. So super exciting. I'll be like I said. I'm going to be getting the physical copy of the book. Um, that's my style. But so that does wrap it up. Thank you to our listeners for staying all the way to the end. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to join us again next week on Friday for another full episode. Next Friday, we'll be discussing the Turkish film Mustang, which is available to watch on Tubi. Be sure to check that out before our episode. And in the meantime, like I just said, follow us on Twitter at GoodDataPod and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. We can be found everywhere by searching the letters G, D T. But if you're listening right now, you already know that. That's all, folks. We'll talk to you next week. That's all, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks, Andrew, for coming on. We had a blast. Oh, thank you very much. Cheers, folks. I really appreciate it. Loved it.